This week's episode of Screen Talk is sponsored by Amazon Studios presenting One Night in Miami. Director Regina King and writer Kemp Powers' film is a critical knockout, humanizing and celebrating the four icons and all they stood for, raves Entertainment Weekly. Now nominated for three Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actor Leslie Odom Jr., Best Adapted Screenplay Kemp Powers, and Best Original Song Speak Now. Time Magazine declares Leslie Odom Jr. is astonishing. One Night in Miami is streaming on Prime Video. Alright, I'm just going to start talking and see who trickles in here. Welcome everyone to this latest Screen Talk Live edition. We're always happy to do these because it's, it's a nice way to sort of open up the doors a bit and engage with some of our community. So I'm Eric Cohn, Executive Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Anne, our Editor-at-Large, as well as our very special guest and a good friend of the site, Gil Robertson, the co-founder of the African American Film Critics Association, which has its annual award show next week. So our timing is perfect to look ahead to that virtual edition. And and I think what's really cool about having Gil on today is that his work over intersects with a lot of what we talk about each week, both in terms of criticism and award season. So what are you dying to know this week? Well, I'll just jump in. Okay. I am still sort of gobsmacked. um, And I'm sure, Gil, you've thought about this a lot. How did we have this extraordinary diverse field of all these movies that were getting all this attention? And some of them were from Netflix to Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Amazon, One Night in Miami, Judas, Warner Brothers. Judas is doing fine. We're not worrying about Judas, but it seems to have replaced all the others on the best picture list. How did this happen that we always, we, we always end up with one woke slot? What, what's wrong with this situation? Go for it, Gil. <laughs> I'm sure you have an answer for this. <laughs> well, I wish I did, but I, I think it probably has something to do with COVID and how, you know, uh, really for most of the year, uh, the industry was uh, sort of, wondering when they would we would return to you know normal and uh with that came um you know some hesitancy with regards to releasing the normal volume of 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 uh film that would have uh you know that would have been available for award consideration so uh you know the obviously the streamers led the pack this year with uh their content because you know obviously you can watch their content from home but in terms of the big box studios uh you know having the theaters closed really really did you know hurt them and uh you know many other uh um uh uh, areas of the industry you know uh obviously the, the uh the theaters uh you know have been suffering and um and so i think that's how we came to what we have now where you really see uh, a lot of uh, activity amongst uh, titles that were released by the streamers and not as many that we probably would have seen had uh, the theaters you know, not been closed. Can you tell us a bit about the process of looking at the year in Black film and how the organization decides uh, which films it wants to honor? Because this is a group that you co-founded in 2003, right? So I imagine it must have been a very different kind of climate back then, just in terms of which films were gaining attention, the kind of work involved in advocating 
for uh, you know just enough films to be made and, and elevated to be a part of the conversation. Well, as the three of us well know, award season actually starts in late August with Telluride. Yeah. and continues on through TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. And then we all return home for uh, campaign season, for lack of a better uh, way of describing it. But it really is no different than, uh, you know, what we just went through with the national election. You know, the studios uh, release specific titles uh, that they feel uh, that they feel are award worthy. And then those of us who are all part of that that circuit uh, uh, on the campaign trail, I guess we're like the press corps that follows the president around. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we look at these films and we participate in uh, talkbacks and uh, other activities that are created to provide us with information so that we can then make uh, a decision uh, around what we feel uh, was best, you know, in a given uh, year. So yeah, that's that's pretty much the process, but it's a lot longer than people would think. It's like six months, you know, of campaigning and of considering and of having arguments and debates and discussions. Anne and I get together annually. Uh, I miss for... our. We go to the Lermitage <laughs> Hotel and we hang out and have delicious Cocktails. food and and wine and, and enjoy you know, each other's sort of, company. Yeah, deliberate over what you know. What are you seeing? What are your thoughts? And so. You know, it all comes together in the end. Like any uh, campaign, you you get the short list, and then you sort of move forward from there. But I mean, how many members do you have now, and yeah. how long ago have you existed, and when did you start? Well, we started in uh, in two thousand three, and back then it was a a much smaller organization than it is today. We have over ninety members, so it's a lot of people, and um, yeah. And, and the members, the good thing about COVID is that the time has offered an opportunity to get to know some of our members. And they're really, really, really incredible people. Uh, we have one member who's based in South Florida um, and he's a doctor. He's a real life medical doctor and he has very much been on the front lines all through COVID. Hmm. And uh, we have several who are attorneys. We have uh, several who are, are expats overseas, uh, one who's in the uh, in the military, uh, uh, in based outside of Frankfurt, Germany. You know, several professors. Um, so it's it's an amazing group of people, and the one thing that they all have in common is their love for cinema, and their passion, and their understanding and appreciation of the art form. And so, yeah, it's a it's a great group of people. And one of the things that I think this organization has sort of been uh, instructive for is that when Hollywood faced a series of uh, sort of shocking uh, existential moments where it sort of had to look in the mirror and say, hey, we have a problem with diversity, your the fact that you created your group when you did and said, hey, we are a group of black journalists. We are responsive to all forms of cinema, but also, you know, very much attuned to the needs of, you know, more diverse voices. I think what, what's been fascinating is that it seems like 
the the group has been has been helpful in terms of sort of parsing the the nature of this conversation. So the it's been you know five plus years since Oscar's so white. What do you think um, has has really improved about the situation, just in terms of how how uh, how we talk about these issues and um, what what are the challenges that we really have right now in terms of in improving for the next stage? You know, I think that uh, the industry has become a lot more sensitive to uh, the whole idea of diversity and inclusion. And I think that I really truly believe that efforts are being made to improve, uh, you know, uh, the diversity DNI equation, you know, in the industry. Uh, certainly you can see um, more content, diverse content, more inclusive content in the pipeline. And I think you also see a greater acceptance of that content, not only, you know, amongst um, our community, our specific community, meaning journalists uh, and media, but uh, from the uh, general public as well, that, you know, from uh, Parasite last year to Minari this year, uh, the success of Crazy Rich Asians, you know, obviously to what we're seeing uh, this award season with, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah, you know, leading the way with, uh, you know, so many nominations and so much attention around, uh, you know, the actors and the uh, parties that are involved. So, um, you know, it's getting better. You know, the Latinx uh, community is certainly, uh, you know, starting to, uh, I think they're starting to understand that, you know, just the power, you know, behind that particular community, just, you know, the numbers alone means that, you know, that audience needs to be served. You know, and the same thing for LGBTQ, you know. Um, so we're getting there. We're not there yet, but uh, we're on the right road. So most of them showed up last night for uh, Godzilla versus Kong. <laughs> the stats are amazing. The Latinx audience was huge. It was like 63% male and, and uh, yeah, the whites were, were in a minority at the, uh, and at the Cinemark Baldwin Hills, I can testify to that as well. I had such a good time. Everyone was yelling and cheering and, and uh, you know, I mean, in disproportionate numbers, um, people of color have been supporting movie going all along more than, more than any other group. It's really true. Percentage wise yeah. in, in terms of the population, you know. Definitely, definitely. And um, I mean, what I really think it comes down to is just a good story. So for me, and if you were to look at um, the AFCO Awards over the years, our slate of films have always been diverse. It's really been about the story, about the performance. Uh, and I think our, our 18 years worth of list, uh, you know, prove that. Um, you know, certainly uh, we give uh, much like BAFTA and GLAAD and other groups, uh, if, you know, we give an extra amount of consideration to uh, films that deal with topics and themes that directly speak to our community. But um, at the end of the day, it really is about the quality of the story, the quality of the performance. I mean, when you have Frances McDermott you know, acting in, in whatever she does, really. I mean, you have to pay attention. So, um, you know, I, I, yeah, it just, I, I would like to see, I know there has often been uh, a little trepidation uh, from, I don't know, from other 
population segments about, you know, uh, maybe putting their full support, you know, behind films that may not necessarily directly speak to their communities. But I think at the end of the day, what people are looking for, everyone, all of us, it's just simply a good story. So let's talk about Judas and the Black Messiah because um, I'm a huge fan of the movie uh, and and um, it, it appears to be the most, there was a, a survey of all the Oscar nominated movies and uh, which ones were actually watched the most by the American people. And Judas led that group more than Tenet, more than any of the others, Promising Young Woman. You'd think some of them but partly because it was in theaters at the end of the day, which I think is also part of why it's surging at the uh, it opened the latest of, of all the of all the movies along with the father. So so it, it's the first movie with all black producers. Uh, this took a long time. I mean, why did it take so long and why was it so hard for this movie that's so commercial, such a strong commercial movie to get made? Wow. Um, Making it easy for you, Gil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just, it is what it is. It took a long time. It was, that was a surprising stat, you know, when it was shared with me. Um, I would have thought that uh, certainly that there had been other films. And I guess technically it's incorrect because, you know, if you look, go back to the J Johnson brothers and, Oscar Michaud, and uh, of course that was at the birth of, of uh, motion, the motion picture industry. I'm sure that those films were indeed had all black uh, uh, producers, but certainly in terms of a big box, you know, film. Um, yeah, it took a minute. I, I, I can't really explain why, but I'm certainly glad that it's happened. And it couldn't have happened to a better team with, uh, with Charles King, uh, who is doing some terrific things over at Macro. And of course, I mean, Ryan Coogler has such an exceptional track record to be such a young creative talent. And uh, and I think there's a lot of promising things that we can look out for with Shaka King. So, yeah, you know, the team sure. over, yeah, the team I mean, over at Warner really has gotten behind it. I think that in the, uh, against the backdrop of Black Lives Matters and all of the racial incidents that occurred over the past 12 months that uh, that that may have sparked some curiosity amongst audiences. And, um, and yeah, just really, you know, who Fred Hampton was. I mean, just to think that he was, I mean, a baby really when he uh, was taken away, taken, you know. 21. Yeah, just unbelievable. So, and I mean, you know, and you have Daniel Kalea and Lakeith Stansfield. I mean, really, you can't go wrong with those two dudes. I mean, they are going to be around for the distance. And it was wonderful to see them play off each other. And uh, uh, they're two men that I like a lot. And, uh, you know, they've been to the show. And uh, I think I think we're going to see wonderful things from them. Yeah, it's a it's really fascinating to dig through the the different kinds of players behind the scenes on this movie. I mean, yes, it's the first time that uh, I, I, it's all black producers nominated for best picture. But it, what's even more fascinating is who these producers are. I mean, Charles King with Macro being this sort of driving force behind so many black stories of the past decade, including obviously Coogler's early work. 
and uh, and uh, Shaka. You know that guy's first movie, Newlyweeds. I remember seeing that at Sundance back in 2013. Totally different, like low budget kind of stoner dramedy thing. You wouldn't have expected it to get to the that level. And Gail, I'm curious what you make of sort of this the developing infrastructure to put black stories out into the world in a bigger way. I mean, Charles King has macro, you've got what Ava's doing with Array. In in the previous decade, it's not, it, it didn't seem to me as somebody who travels to festivals, like we were lacking for black stories. I mean, I remember seeing Barry Jenkins' first film, Medicine for Melancholy, back in 2008. But then, you know, nothing. I mean, it seemed like there was that we were missing some sort of extra step when a, when a black filmmaker came along and very clearly captured... Uh, a world or, or showed their capabilities as a storyteller where they just could not enter the system. So, you know, you're, you've been, you were a journalist during all that time. So what did you see as sort of the, the challenge at that time? And, and what was it, what was it like to sort of see things start to change and, and, and fix that equation a bit? Wow. I mean, you know, I, you know, sometimes things just happen when they happen. And maybe 10 or 20 years ago, when I was uh, a lot younger, I would have maybe had a different reaction to it. But I think everything comes in its own time. And so we're just at a point where in our evolution as a community where these films are are getting the green light and receiving the type of support that they need, both within the industry and also amongst consumers. And so... um, I think that uh, with Ava and Charles and uh, there are others, there are many others, you know, there's a certain uh, uh, confidence and boldness in, uh, in, in their approach to their work and their commitment to their craft. And certainly not to say that that didn't exist before, but I think that because the environment now is more receptive to um, the idea of you know, diverse stories, more inclusive stories that it certainly uh, offered them a door that they've walked through. Well, Ava is so unusual because of her marketing background and and her ability to, uh, she has this uncanny uh, ability to promote and to uh, reach and, and her use of social media and her use of advocacy and her the way that she's just built an empire, uh, almost a, a, not like Oprah, but in, in a similar way that where she can really um, hire uh, new uh, talent, you know, on television for her series or Queen Sugar or 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 bring in uh, little independent movies and find ways to reach uh, outlets for them. I'm 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 incredibly impressed with with how she she's building awareness across the board uh, for for things that people can learn about that they might not otherwise have been able to know about at all. Um, yeah, I mean, Ava is. Uh as both of you know, is a dear friend and someone I've known for uh, quite a long time uh, since both of us really got in the industry. And yeah, I mean, her spirit and her drive and her um, her sense of purpose is, 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 is there now for the world to see. And she is a, a wonderful human being and she's very um, committed, you know, to uh, telling stories that are important and also opening the door of opportunity to um, communities that may not have been well served in the past, you know, in terms of, you know, all female directors behind Queen Sugar and and just the way that she uh, 
you know, is telling stories uh, behind stories that, and not just Black stories, but stories about, you know, marginalized communities that uh, that deserve uh, their day in the sun. I'm also curious about, I mean, one of the things that I think uh, people are more cognizant of is access, not just in terms of storytellers, but media themselves. And uh, it seemed like there was this sort of fascinating reckoning of sorts where studios realized that they just weren't giving access to black journalists what was your experience of sort of recognizing that problem and then you know realizing that there was something that, that had to be done to fix that because it seems like this is still something that's evolving yeah it, sadly it is uh and that sort of speaks to the origins of, of afka uh, which is how we say it, the African-American Film Critics Association. And at the time, um, you know, I mean, it's a little tribe of people to begin with. And certainly, you know, within that uh, group, uh, the number of, of Blacks who operate, um, or really any uh, racial minority, uh, is very, very small. I was fortunate, uh, given the fact that I'm from L.A. and I, was, I live in L.A., although I'm in Atlanta right now, but I'm, I'll be back home in a, uh, when I get my second shot in a couple of weeks. But, um, you know, I was fortunate in that I my understanding of how to navigate the system sort of, again, opened doors. The doors that were starting to open, I was able to walk through. Um, and so we came together. There were, there were other journalists who were experiencing difficulty about gaining access to uh, certain films and certain talent. And it's important to understand that that access is what allows you to create for yourself a, a career, a sustainable one that puts literally puts food on the table and pays the bills. And so if you're being denied access to an A-list talent or a tentpole film, uh, you have nothing to give to your editors. You have nothing to speak to your editors about and therefore the call stop, you know, and the opportunities, you know, melt away. And so you find yourself getting a second job because you still have uh, bills to pay and mouths to feed. So, you know, it's a lot of that behind the reasoning of why, you know, journalists, uh, all journalists, you know, want to have that access because that access literally is equal to currency hard currency that pays the bills and that, you know, puts kids through college, you know, pays the medical insurance, the retirement fund, and all of those other things. So it's it's much more real than I think people might, if you really kind of double down on it about what this access truly means. Yeah. So when we started, it was a group of us, the story is true. I was, we were at, we were a junket journalist, and that's even a smaller group of people. And you fly back and forth between LA and New York and other places, literally in some cases every weekend. And so I was taking a little break outside the Regency Hotel on Park Avenue. And one of our members, uh, one of an individual who was also on that circuit came walking up the street uh, and expressed to me uh, some concerns that they were having. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm hearing about it. And so, you know, we just decided to thought thinking that um, greater strength in numbers, right? And we decided to get together. Back then, it was mostly centered around journalists who travel on this junket circuit. And we started in the fall of 2003. And, you know, there have been a few different, you know, 
iterations of the group since then in terms of membership and involvement and participation. But, you know, like I said before, it's, it's grown into 90 people who, you know, are from all over the country and in some cases live all over the world. So, and, and, you know, things are getting together. I mean, getting better. Um, the numbers are still way too small, but, um, you know, we will persevere. We will keep moving forward. Uh, as you know, we're doing a great program with, uh, with Penske, um, our uh, student Michelle program that we're doing at the Center for Enriched Studies is a way to spark interest and curiosity about careers in uh, arts and entertainment journalism and specifically film criticism. You know, so hopefully, you know, in a few years, once those kids get out into the real world, you know, they will add to our ranks. Yeah. And we also uh, produce boot camps for a year uh, around the country, one in the South, East, North and West, uh, where we work with students, college-age students, who are interested in uh, just finding out more about what what the three of us, you know, do for a living. Or what Speaking I did of which, we're all very lucky to be uh, employed in in one way or another. But but what is the future? Uh, I mean, for for journalism and in, in the film universe and for film criticism, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's not necessarily robust and, and optimistic, is it? Well, you know, for a long time, you know, uh, since, I mean, certainly the uh, early 2000s, the uh, uh, newsrooms have started to look very different than the, how they did when we were growing up, where you might have a dedicated film critic and nowadays in many uh, media environments, and I'm not, you know, I'm, it's for the audience because certainly uh, we all know this, uh, you may have uh, a, a, a film critic who in fact is probably more of an A&E journalist because it's an all hands on deck uh, model now where- Arts and entertainment, yeah. Right, yeah. where you may be covering a film one day, but you might be covering a concert or an art opening uh, the next, because those are just some the economics have changed. And that's just what the demand is. You know, if you're going to keep the job, you're going to have to, you know, step outside of just one lane and, and operate within the entire A&E space. Eric, what do you, I mean, what do you think? I, I mean, it's a, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this for most of my career and I was involved in the Michaud project that Gil referenced earlier, which is a great initiative to engage high school students from uh, diverse backgrounds. And one of the things that's really interesting about it is that I think a lot of people realize that criticism is is not the most obvious practical pursuit. It almost seems like it's this thing that doesn't really exist until somehow you, you have it. You know, that Roger Ebert was just a film critic. There's no sense of, you know, how did he get into this? How did he transition into this role? Or we remember that Pauline Kael was the, you know, one of the greats of her field. Nobody really uh, understands that she was already middle-aged and had more or less grown daughter by the time she got employed at The New Yorker. So the, there's, there's a process of sort of um, demystifying the nature of the media landscape that I think gets missed out on. And because the barrier for entry is very high, you know, a lot of times when people get into this stuff, it's because they went to a nice school or they, they have certain connections and so forth. There is, I think it is really important for us to sort of explain to people that it's a very messy process. And a lot of times people who operate as critics, either they have another kind of job on the side or it's part of a bigger piece of the equation. And that's the thing we really have to message to people 
in order for, for it to be a more inclusive field. Because otherwise, I think a lot of times people sort of drift off to the side and they assume that's where the only place they can they can be. So um, we have a we have a question uh, from Sabrina Wood who wants to know. Um, I think she's one of your members, uh, Gil. Uh, what help is there for older professionals who want to transition into this area? She's a new member and still working as a CPA. She says. Well, it's like what Eric uh, just said. I mean, it. Uh, uh, you know, having a career as a uh, film critic or a and journalist is not without its challenges and. I would say, as I say to a lot of our, our new and younger members, to just um, do what you do um, and do it consistently, is that a growing a career in this area is really about consistent delivery. And, uh, you know, don't focus on, you know, how soon am I going to go to the film festivals? How soon am I going to be invited? to this or that, focus on, on creating um, respect around your work, um, res respect around your name, um, building market share within your community. It's no secret, it's much more difficult if you don't live in LA or New York, but if regardless of where you live, if you're um, gaining followers, if you're gaining you know, and growing an audience, um, the studios and all the people who you want to take notice will, because they'll recognize you as a real leader, you know, in terms of, uh, of the work that you do. So yeah, it's, but it's about consistent delivery, consistent delivery. That, that would be my best advice. That's a good way of putting it. You do have to have a certain kind of, people don't realize that, that this is hard work. You have to have discipline. You got to keep a calendar, you know, you got to deliver on your deadlines and stuff. Otherwise it doesn't matter who you are. People aren't going to want to keep working with you if, if you're unreliable. So I, I have a bigger cultural question. And if anyone else who's listening in has other questions, you can just put them in that Q and a box. But, uh, while, while I'm, I'm, you're thinking of those, I, I wanted to ask about visibility and uh, how filmmakers choose to kind of progress through their careers. I mean, as Anne knows, I'm not the biggest fan of a great filmmaker who makes a first feature at a film festival taking a studio gig, because to me, it often feels like there's so much you can do without the sort of pressures of IP and, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, from a visibility standpoint, we're living in this fascinating time where like Netflix can make Chicago seven and that can be, you know, this, the most, the most viewed best picture nominee is a movie that is, you know, this big ensemble drama that, you know, is, is not necessarily the kind of thing that that's an obvious commercial slam dunk, except, uh, you know, it's Aaron Sorkin and so forth. But, but I think that what's, what's fascinating about the world that we're living in now is that, you have a Netflix or somebody like that that will finance these kinds of projects and, and allow people to sort of work on their own terms to some degree. But then, you know, as, as great as it is to see a Coogler go and, and play around with Black Panther, I, I want to see him do original stuff. I want to see him go. And I know he wants to and all that. But, it, but when I see the filmmakers who are sort of absorbed by the system, I get worried. And I know you, you consult with all of these people. You, you may not let it all on, but I know, I know you're talking to all the power players. So how do you feel about that, that sort of that part of the process? I mean, you know, it's, uh, I think it's up to the individual, you know, uh, 
how they chart their paths. And, um, you know, the idea of, of, uh, of uh, you know, being part of a studio system uh, is very attractive, you know, I mean, because like we talked about earlier, the hustle's real and, and uh, you know, you want that type of, I'm sure many people want the type of cover and the type of support that being a part of that type of infrastructure, a strong infrastructure, you know, can offer you as a creative. Of course, you know, there's a great argument that you can make for uh, for the independent spirit and for people who sort of work within that, you know, subspace within our it, within our community. And I think there's a, um, you know, I think there's a value in both. And so, um, you know, you can't be mad at the player. You got to be, you know, they're just playing the game. <laughs> it's just to rework that phrase. And yeah, I mean, as long as they are able to, um, as long as it's moving them in the direction that they uh, that they see for themselves, and I'm fine with it. And the good news is that it also opens doors for other people. Um, and Judas being one one example, Kugler helped to open the door for that movie to get made. Yeah, no, absolutely. What he's doing with that production company is fascinating, and I think it's an interesting contrast because he also brought Terrence Nance on to do Space Jam too which didn't work out, right? So, you know, it's not like every talented filmmaker should be taking on these behemoths, but if somebody can sort of use that to, to you know, kind of complicate the product, then I think that's that seems to be sort of the sweet spot that, that we should be encouraging on some level. So um, in the time that we have left, Gil, can you... Uh, preview next week's virtual edition of the AFCA award ceremony. What's what's it been like sort of juggling all this talent uh, for? And uh, who's allowed to watch it? You know, how do you how do you get well, to see it? Uh, both of you will be get, receiving links, of course. Um, the April seventh showing. I mean, I think the challenge that everyone, that all of us, uh, all all of the organizations who produce uh, award events are trying to. How do we uh, provide you and how do we provide our audience uh, with the best experience? And so that's been the goal and that's certainly the intention behind all of the work that we've been doing. So the event on the 7th will be private invite only and uh, the studios will have uh, tables and, uh, and you know the talent reps and the agencies and, and just the community will be invited to watch. And then on April 17th, which is the final weekend before uh, Oscar ballots are due, we'll have a more public facing airing uh, that will be uh, uh, in a release that literally uh, I will know who uh, today. <laughs> and the release, and, the, and you guys should have the release on your desk on Monday. So, um, so, but that'll be more public facing. That'll be available on, you know, on cable. And um, and so like a much larger audience, a nationwide audience, you know, will get a chance to see the show. But we have, uh, I mean, you know, our list includes, um, you know, best acting, best performances from, uh, you know, Daniel Kaluuya, uh, Andrew Day, who I just, just, completely blew me away with what she did in uh, United States versus Billie Holiday. 
um, you know, Ken Powers for Soul, uh, Dana Murray for Soul, one of the producers, um, you know, tributes to uh, Cecily Tyson and, uh, and Chadwick, uh, a special achievement honors going to Mariah Carey, Viola Davis, George C. Wolfe, and the incredible team of, of, uh, of Lisa Cortez, Liz Garbus, and Stacey Abrams for All In, uh, the Fight for Democracy, which will receive our Stanley Kramer Social Justice Award this year. A lot of fun, a lot of hard work. We, the two of you certainly know, know the pain of what we go through uh, during award season. And the fact that this year it was two months longer you know, hasn't made it easy, but you know, you know, I could be folding sheets on a on a on a, on a in a motel off, off of Highway Forty. So I love what I do. No, we're 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 glad you do it, and uh, and Gil will be back to the Lermitage in no time. I look forward to it. Find my way to tell get me, you. Tell me when you get your second vax, and we're we'll we'll make a date. In the sixteenth. So I'm coming back the following weekend. So we're we'll, on at the very least we'll, we'll be able to to toast virtually next week for this show can't wait for that and uh it's always great to, to hear from you gil you're doing really great work so thank you again for being here and thanks everyone for tuning in really enjoyed having an audience for this discussion so good luck thank gil. you thank you thank you looking forward to it have a good one absolutely i will see you both soon bye bye, bye.